We look at Luke chapter 8, beginning with verse 22. One day he, that's Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and they were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he woke, and he rebuked the wind and the waging, raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? that he commands even the winds and the waters, and they obey him. It is our privilege to dig into the Word of God this morning, uh, but a quick question before we get started. Do you have a place you'd rather be than any other place? Do you have, you know, sometimes we, we call it a happy place. Do you, do you call just a place that when you are in that place, it just feels really, really good? Maybe for some of you is to have your, your feet in the sand uh, sitting there on the beach. Uh, maybe for some of you it's to be freezing to death in a deer stand. Uh, maybe for some of you it is uh, at Disney. Maybe for some of you it's on a, on a cruise. Maybe uh, for, for some of you uh, it is, it, it's out fishing. Uh, I don't know where it is for you. I, I was thinking about, okay, Okay, what, what, is my, what is my happy place? I, I think as a, as a kid who grew up in Florida loving baseball, I think my favorite happy place, if I could just pop and be any place, it would be at a spring training game uh, in Florida. We're just weeks away from those starting. I went down to go see my dad this week. You could just feel it in the air. It was that time uh, of, of year, and, and you just walk toward the stadium, and, and it's just that the sun is so bright, and, and it's fantastic. And, and as you walk in, you can smell the freshly cut grass. You, you can hear kind of the chatter of the people in the stands. You hear the crack of the wooden bat on the, on the ball. You can smell the popcorn. You can taste the hot pretzel. You can just sit down and relax. Oh, it's fantastic. I'll be right back. Um, I think for the disciples, I think that when they got in a boat with Jesus, it was pretty close to one of their happy places. It was pretty close to like they just knew this is going to be good. I think getting in the boat with Jesus well, was really, really good for, for several reasons. One, it was familiar. Most of these guys, or a bunch of these guys, were fishermen who, who had fished there on the Sea of Galilee. And so when they, when they put their feet into that boat and they could feel the sway of that boat on the water, they could hear the water lapping up on the sides of it, they could feel the, the rope in their hands. I bet you some of those disciples who had been called away from being fishers, uh, fishermen on that sea just to be back in that boat on that water with that smell, with that rope in their hands again, they're just like, oh, I miss this. I know I'm supposed to be with Jesus, but oh, I, this, this is a great place to be. I think there was another benefit to being on the boat, and that is as they, they got in that boat and they pushed away from shore, all of those people stayed behind. For chapters now, we have seen that Jesus has been surrounded by crowds upon crowds and crowds upon crowds, and no matter how much of an extrovert you are, 
At some point in time, you need a break. At some point in time, that noise, that, that cacophony of people constantly pushing and shoving and being around Jesus, it was just nice to push off and watch those crowds get a little bit further in the distance moment by moment. And they could take a deep breath for a moment. And then there was something about the size of that boat. There's a picture of one here that they found on the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. It's from the first century, and you can see it is about the time of Jesus. That boat measures 27 feet in length, about 8 feet in width. You know what that means? It's the perfect size to squeeze 12 guys and Jesus into that boat. Not a lot of room for luggage, not a lot of room for extra people. I think one of the things that they loved about being in that boat is it was just them and Jesus. Finally, some time for just us. You can kind of hear the disciples saying. So I think that when they got in that boat, they were like, oh, it's good to be back in a boat. It's good to be back in the water. Oh, it's good to be away from all of those crowds and all of those people. And now finally, we get some quality time with Jesus. It was going to be great. And then Jesus immediately takes a nap. They almost die, and every one of them gets put on the spot. Apparently, the Jesus cruise line wasn't exactly what they thought it was going to be. In fact, there are some lessons that we can kind of think about this morning as we think about what is it like when we go cruising with Jesus, as we get in the boat with Jesus and we live life with Jesus, what is it that we can expect? I think sometimes we can think, oh, this is going to be absolutely fabulous. And then sometimes that journey can be kind of tough. So let's... Let's see if we can't get in that boat without anybody else noticing. And let's see what it is that we find that God has for us in this passage of Scripture. And the first thing that I want you to see this morning is I want you to see that what we find here is that we have a life pattern to follow. We have a life pattern to follow. I think one of the things that we need to see here is that there came a time and place where even Jesus said, okay, we got to take a break. In fact, I think that's the biggest reason why Jesus often gets in the boats. It is to step away from the crowd. It is to unplug. It is to rest. In fact, we see that because as soon as Jesus gets in the boat, I mean, if there was a plane, they haven't even turned off the fasten seatbelt lights yet. I mean, Jesus is out. Jesus goes to sleep and immediately falls to sleep in this place. It is because he is exhausted and he is worn out. When we look at this, I think we are reminded, all of us, that Jesus would tell us the importance of a pattern of life for all of us to unplug, to step away, and to rest. Sometimes we need that because we have been running at such a high level for such a long time that we need to stop. Even though it seems like even momentum by itself is going to run us off the map. Sometimes it's just a sense of busyness. 
Sometimes it is a crush of so many demands and so many people. If you go back in the chapters preceding this, almost from the middle of chapter 5, the middle of chapter 6, what you see is it's almost a continuous narrative. This, then it says, next they did this, and the next day, and as soon as this happened, this happened. It is just this con con combining of all of these activities. And so Jesus finally just says, it's time to step away. It matters that we stop and that we unplug. I think for the disciples, it was important for them to unplug because they needed the opportunity to process, to reflect, to debrief all the things that had been happening in their life. You ever go through one of those seasons where you're just trying to hold everything together and what you really need more than anything else is just stop and pause? In fact, Jesus builds this, God builds this into our lives because He commands us, He tells us that we should have a pattern in our lives that at least once a week that we stop and we pause and we unplug. Now watch how Jesus does that. Jesus does that in several ways. One of them, he takes a nap. In fact, I would like to say that you are never more like Jesus than when you're taking a nap. But not right now. This, this doesn't count. But, but when you take a nap, Jesus rested. It is part of unplugging. It is part of disconnecting. It is part of recovery that he's built inside of our life. Jesus, as he gets into the boat here, he, he pulls away from people. Sometimes we need to be alone to refresh and to disconnect. We, we also see that a big part of Jesus' life, that when he needed to disconnect, when he needed, when he needed to be refreshed, it wasn't just to take a nap. It wasn't just to, to go across the lake. But Jesus also pulled away, and it tells us that his routine was to be up early in the morning and to be alone and to pray. That was part of his refreshment. That was part of his recovery. In fact, his times alone with God as he prayed were so profound that when he would come back into the camp with the rest of the disciples, they would see the transformation that had happened in his life, how he had been re renewed and refreshed by his time away that they came to Jesus and said, would you teach us to pray like that? The first thing that we see here is that you and I need a pattern of refreshment that comes from unplugging, stepping away, and just plain rest. We were talking about this passage in staff uh, this week, and we were kind of looking at the passage ahead of time and just kind of picking apart. And we talked about this element of rest, and, and Colby said, man, you should preach the whole sermon on rest. I said, I can't do that. He said, why? I said, it's one of the things that I do worse of all the things. I'm good at naps. But the moment that I wake back up, I've picked everything up. I have a difficult time, and Susan has the same thing with me sometimes, is that we have a difficult time just putting things down. Here's what happens when I don't put things down, when I don't rest. It means 
that it costs me time with my family. And I don't just mean that, that I'm at work someplace. What I mean is that work is with me. And so even when I'm in the room with my family, I'm not really there. I will tell you that when I don't rest, it costs me time with God. Because I can even be doing church things, spiritual things, but my heart and my spirit just isn't at rest. And when I'm not at rest, I can't be before the Father in the same way. And when I don't rest, and when I don't set some things aside, then my own spirit, my own ability to process this world is damaged. So I would say one of the first things that we'd see in this passage is that we need to follow this pattern that Jesus has, that there are times as a routine and as a moment where we've got to say, I've got to stop that Jesus stops and he pulls away. And if we're going to follow his pattern, then we need to do that as well. And the second thing I want you to see from this passage, I want you to see a miracle, a miracle to marvel at. A miracle to marvel at. Now, I had some interesting times studying this week because what we have here is the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, their home course, so to speak. This is where they have spent most of their life. Most of these guys are from the surrounding villages. A bunch of these guys are fishermen on this very lake. Now here's the thing that I had to try to process this week. Almost all of my life growing up, I've been told that these kinds of storms were common on the Sea of Galilee. That because of the geographic nature of the, the area and because the, 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 the Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level, uh, eat your heart out in New Orleans, 700 feet below the sea level, it's surrounded by a rim of mountains, that there was seas, that there would be winds that would blow down and it would create these storms and it was a common event. I spent some time trying to research that a little bit this week and what I found is I found some people who live around the Sea of Galilee today and what they say is storms are really, really rare in this place. It is, it is almost all year long. There are no storms in this place. And so now I'm confused. I'm trying to figure out what, what's going on here. And so I looked up some more, and what I found is that there was a weather report of a major storm on the Sea of Galilee this last May. And it was so significant. It says this storm reminds us of the storm back in 96 and the storm back in 92. As I researched some more, what I found out is that storms on the Sea of Galilee are rare. But when they come, the, the Greek word is, they're a doozy. They are sudden, and they are intense, and they are dramatic. So what we have here is on the Sea of Galilee, you have storms that are rare, sudden, and intense. If you ask me, that's the perfect storm to scare the daylights out of you. Because when I look at this passage, I try to figure out how are these men, how are these grown men who have grown up on this lake, how are they so frightened in this moment? Well, the reality is because these storms are rare, but when they come, they are sudden out of nowhere, and they are intense when they come. So it is possible that these guys 
remember a couple of these storms. But it's not every day. And I think maybe sometimes they didn't have 13 guys in a boat. But what it tells us that when this storm arrived, their boat started to fill with water. The text tells us that they were in danger. And in fact, they come to Jesus and try to wake him up and say, we are perishing. Basically, they say to Jesus, we're all going to die. In fact, one of the other gospel writers who tells this same story, he tells a story that they wake up Jesus and says, don't you care that we're all going to die in this moment? Now, Jesus was a good napper. <laughs> he slept through the storm. They had to intentionally wake him up. They had to say, Master, Master, we are going to die. Jesus wakes up, looks around, and the passage of Scripture says he rebukes. Now, you're reading that for the first time. You're not sure who he's rebuking. If you woke me up from the nap. But Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. Now, that word rebukes, he doesn't necessarily yell at the waves, but I think one of the best understandings of that is he put the wind and the waves in their place. Isn't that what we do when we rebuke somebody? We, we put them in their place. Jesus stands up, arises, speaks to the wind and the waves, and he puts the wind and their waves in their place, and there's calm, and there's peace, and there's quiet. And what once was crisis just a moment ago is now perfect stillness and peace and calm. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. We, we have never been in a place where the storm was raging. We're going to die to perfect in every way. I think it would be a remarkable thing to see. It would be a remarkable thing to witness. But I want to add another layer this morning. I want to remind you that these guys in the boat all grew up with their Jewish Bible. They all grew up with their Jewish hymnal, their, 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 their psalms that they would sing. In fact, they probably had memorized huge segments of these psalms. They were familiar with all of the psalms. The amount of input into their life would have been limited, but the amount of the Word of God that they knew and they were familiar with would have been a huge amount. So they knew psalms like this, Psalms 89, verse 9, it says, You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still down. They would have known Psalm 65, 7 that says, The one who stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of their waves and the tumult of the peoples. They would have known Psalm 93 that says, Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, is the Lord on high is mighty. 
And they, they would have known Psalm 107 that says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. These are the psalms that they knew. These are the psalms that they had been reciting and hearing and being part of their worship for their entire lives. These were the statements that says, you know what God is like? He speaks and He stills the sea. And then Jesus speaks and He stills the sea. That thing that God does, Jesus just did. Right, he, right, it just happened. This thing that we say over and over again, this is what God looks like. Jesus just did it right in front of their eyes. When you get to verse 25, it tells us that they marveled, they wondered, that they were full of fear. Yeah, they were. They just watched God do God things right in front of their eyes. I can't tell you where they were on their journey of fully understood the deity of God, the deity of Jesus, that Jesus was God himself. But I got to tell you, this was a big piece. If you spend your whole life saying, these are the things that God does, and then Jesus does it right there in front of your eyes. Wow. It's a miracle to marvel at. But I would also tell you, I would also tell you that it's a critical question to answer. It's a critical question to answer. It's been a while since I took an exam. Anyone? Anyone have to take an exam lately? Uh, it's been a while since I had to go to the bookstore and buy one of the Scantrons where you colored in the little bubbles or, or to buy the little blue book that was the little notebook that you carried in to, to take an exam. I don't know if they use those anymore. Someone help me out with that, that later. It's been a while since I've had to stay up and, and study uh, for a test. You may have had to take a test this week. Maybe you need one for work. Maybe there's a certification that's depending. You've got to go and sign in, log in to, to a website, and you've got to take this test. Your, your, your job, your livelihood depends on you passing this test. It's been a while since I've had one of those, those moments. But what I do remember is that after studying for half the night, there were some things that I knew. And boy, I hope they'd be on the test. Boy, there were some things that I had down that I had down pat. I knew the answer to that. Boy, I hope that's questions one, two, and three. And then there were some other things that I hoped would not be on the test. And in fact, I hoped that no one would ever ask me the rest of my life. Because I didn't have a clue. I had no way to answer that. Jesus, in the quietness of the storm that's become calm, when he has the attention of all of the disciples, he says, where is your faith? Where is your faith? 
Boy, that's a hard question. It cuts straight to the core. You don't believe me? Watch this. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Years ago, Susan dropped me off at the airport. I have a dream of making a perfect run through TSA. I got my shoes off. I've got my laptop out. I got the right things in the bag. I've got my every everything goes perfect. In fact, when I go through the scanner, they shake my hand and say thank you. That's the best job anyone's ever done, uh, going through uh, the, the scanner. Like I said, I don't rest as much as I uh, as I should. And so I'm in line there, and, and two or three people are left in front of me, and I'm trying to make sure I've got all my stuff just the way I'm supposed to do it. And and they're asking for people. Well, we need your ID. I'm like, okay, I'm going to have my ID out. I don't have my wallet. I am at the airport, two people away from going through the line. And they're going to say, where's your ID? Jesus says, I was able to call Susan, and she was close enough. She came by. I said, baby, do you miss me? And I said, well, guess what? You get to see me one more time today. Um, and she came and brought the wallet. So it was good. But, but Jesus says to the disciples, Where's your faith? And you can almost see the disciples. Where, where's your faith? Where's your faith? I would tell you that we're gonna, the disciples had to answer that question. And I would tell you that you and I have to answer that question. And I would tell you that every single person needs to have three different kinds of faith three different kinds of faith every single person needs to have. The first one is saving faith. We find this described in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. It says, because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe on your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's how we begin to have a personal relationship with Christ. That's the beginning of the journey. Every once in a while, you'll hear people talk about, well, this is when I got saved, or are you saved? When they're talking about saved, they're talking about a rescue, of spiritual, of, of spiritual rescue in your life from condemnation. And this says, if you will believe, if you will trust, then you will be saved. Sometimes when we talk about faith, we can talk about it in terms of belief. But I think there's another word that we can look at just as much, and that is reliance. Jesus says to the disciples, what are you relying on? Every person for their salvation needs to rely on Jesus and needs to have a beginning point of their spiritual journey where they begin by trusting Jesus as their Lord, Savior, Master, Forgiver, and Ruler of their life. Every person needs saving faith. But I would also tell you that each person needs what I would call living faith. Living faith. This is Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
In other words, as I continue to live since my salvation, since my saving faith, since my beginning of my journey, Jesus is taking up more and more of my life with his patterns, his priorities, and his purpose for me. And I have to learn how to trust him and believe him in the day-to-day -day operations of life. And so when Jesus says to the disciples, let us go to the other side, you have to believe that you're going to get to the other side. He's already told you how this story is going to end. It's going to end with you on the other side of the lake. And that takes practice to believe Jesus and to take him at his word for what he said. It takes time for us to allow Jesus to take up more of our life with his patterns, his priorities, and his purpose. But that's what's required of us, is that we have living faith. Not just saving faith, but a living faith that moves on from that. And then what we need is that we need crisis faith. For those moments when the storm suddenly comes upon us out of nowhere and we cry out, Lord, we are perishing. We do not have to ask the question, do you care, God? Because we know that he cares. But in those moments of crisis, in those moments of the storm, we have faith that can help us walk through that storm. Now, one of the places that I was reading this week said that the disciples should have known that no harm would come to them because they were with Jesus. My response to that was hogwash. Have you read the rest of the story? Jesus is publicly executed. That's what we like to call harm. It was real harm. So what does it mean in terms of this crisis faith? What happens when we cry out to him? Well, I can't promise that you won't experience any harm. But here's what I can promise. You will experience no harm that is beyond his power. He can rebuke the winds and the waves. There is no harm that you will face that is outside of his power. There is no harm that you will face that is beyond his purpose. You see, Jesus wasn't just there to cross the other side of the lake, but he was there to teach those men how to believe and how to grow in their faith. But he wasn't just there to do that. He was there to lay down his life for us. And there was going to be no storm, no earthquake, no anything that was going to keep him from accomplishing his purpose. I want you to know that whatever storm you may be in, there is no harm that will come to you beyond his purpose. I will tell you that there will be no harm that comes to you beyond his presence. You may think that Jesus isn't paying attention, but I will tell you that he is there and knows more about your situation than you know. And he is there. He tells us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. There is no harm that you will face that will be beyond his presence. And then I will tell you that there is no harm that you will face that are beyond his parameters.
where he says, this far and no more. This far and no more. Harm will allow, be allowed to come this far, but it will not trespass beyond what God says is the limits of that harm in your life. So what does this mean for us? It means that every person needs saving faith, living faith, and crisis faith. But here's the thing. They're connected. You can't just go in the store and say, well, I'll have two pounds of crisis faith and I'll come back for the rest later. They're connected. In fact, they stack on one another. You, you can't really lean into crisis faith if you have not been growing and developing living faith where you are allowing Jesus to increasingly have control over your life. But you can't have living faith until you have saving faith. It begins with saving faith, where you put the whole weight of your life on Him and live under His authority and under His grace. And so this morning, if you've never begun that journey with saving faith, let's do that today. Choose that today. So that if Jesus looks at you and says, where is your faith? You can hold up and say, I have that saving faith. I have that saving faith. On this day, I placed my faith on you. And then in terms of your living faith, man, don't let your salvation be the last landmark of your spiritual journey. But continue to be growing and developing and let Jesus take up more and more of your life with his patterns, his priorities, and his purpose every single day. Yield a new part of your life to him. And then, if you are in one of those crisis spots, call on his name. He will be there. He will be there. And He will not be short power or love or wisdom or purpose in your life. He will be there. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? If we can pray for one part of that in your life today, your pastors will be here in just a moment. If you need to begin with that saving faith, we want to help you. If you need that crisis faith, we want to pray over you in this day. But would you stand?